This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and joined once again by new podcast co-host, Ted Olson. Yeah, at some stage, vice podcast co-host might, might work, I don't know. Guest, today I'm still guest, I guess. Okay, but soon to get an upgrade, not an upgrade. What is an updated title, I suppose? Right, sure. Mark will be back. Mark will return, yes. At some point. I mean, he's, we've seen him in the building. Yep. He's at the CT board meeting today, so we're praying for that. Always good to be governed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ted, who is joining us today? We are joined by Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, she is the former vice president of content at Veritas, and she is co-founder of Vocable Communications, which helps people deliver speeches to live audiences. And uh, we are here because she had a rocking piece on uh, CT Women this week. Hey, Rebecca. Hi. Great to have you here on the show. Um, I imagine many of our listeners did read your piece, but in any event, I'm excited that they're going to. Before we get into that, though, where are you calling us from today? I'm calling from Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, which has the same name as the place I used to live, but is in the wrong country. <laughs> the wrong country. That's right. That's I call it New Cambridge here. No, that's very good. That's true. That did happen in a lot of places in the East Coast. They got the new. Right. But somehow Cambridge avoided that. They just wanted to supplant the original one, I guess. Yeah, try again. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into your article. So last week, Rebecca wrote a piece for us that we published called Why I Don't Sit With My Husband at Church. And she wrote this. Every Sunday, my husband and I walk into church and see someone sitting new alone. If possible, we go and sit with them. If there are two people, we divide. It's often awkward and uncomfortable, but nevertheless worth it. Why? Because the gospel is a story of juxtaposition in community. Jesus sat with a Samaritan woman and asked her for a drink. Philip got into the chariot with an Ethiopian eunuch. The early church ate together. This piece generated a variety of responses, many of them very strong responses. So I'm just going to read a couple of them that we got on Facebook. All right, here is one response. Why is it that extroverts, especially in church settings, see their behavior as desirable or preferred, and introverts are expected to just deal with it? Why not honor an introvert's desire for peace, quiet, privacy, and personal space? Would they approach me in the same way in a store or restaurant or public park? Then why at church? By the way, that person got the definitions for introvert and extrovert wrong, but I will overlook that. <laughs> All right, here's another response. My favorite church of all time was one where I always had invitations to sit with others. Occasionally, I needed introvert time at church and no one batted an eye, but it was wonderful to know the invitations were always there. It felt loved. So, given the diversity of personality type, stage of life, church size, and cultural background, how should Christians corporately and individually reach out to newcomers and those attending church by themselves? I'm excited to get into all of this today because I know I have opinions about all of the things going on here. But before I get into that, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today, the magazine. 
which as usual, you can get by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. So Ted, our May issue just came out. Do you want to tell people about what's on the cover story? Yeah, our cover story is by Amy Julia Becker. It's on the Ministry of uh, the Disabled. We've, you know, obviously looked a lot at, uh, you know, over the years in CT about ministry to the disabled. Uh, But this is looking at the ministry that people with intellectual disabilities in particular have uh, for the church. So it's not just a question of having someone with Down syndrome be an usher at your church, but it's it's just a way in which uh, the unique giftings of folks with intellectual disabilities, how they how they can have a ministry within the life of the church. It's not just they're not just the uh, objects to be ministered to. That is that that's not the proper way to think of life together in a in a church. And and you know I mean and so I could say that in a paragraph, but the way in which Amy Julia talks about that through this entire story, I think really will help people kind of catch a vision for um, how our churches can be better uh, as churches for people with with intellectual disabilities. All right. So if you'd like to be informed about this particular topic and potentially get really excited about it and bring something new to your church, you can read this piece by going to our website and you can also get it in magazine form. And again, you can have access to read it, our May cover story, by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, Ted, this is the time of the show that we give a gut check. So you read this piece, Why I Don't Sit With My Husband at Church. Yeah. What did you think? You know, I'm not the kind of editorial director that tweets every article that we publish. Uh, this for better one, or worse. For better or worse. Yeah, I probably should do more. Uh, but this one I read, and I'm, I tweeted something like, I was not expecting to be quite so challenged by this article. Like I just said about the, the cover story, it's easy to summarize in a uh, sentence or two. Like, I don't sit with my husband because sometimes it's good to sit with people who are alone. But I think the larger vision here of, of what the church is and questioning the assumption, the assumption, the default mode is, of course, we sit together as a family. And just questioning, like, why is it that we do that? Should we always be doing that? And just asking, I think, uh, asking people to notice. Notice what's going on around you at church. I was like, yep, there's the gut check right there where I need to make sure that I am sitting where I'm supposed to be sitting. It's not always going to be with my family. Or not, because you're going to terrify some mislabeled introverts, as we'll get into (laughs) in a second. Um, So... Some of the listeners on the show know that I attend a house church. And one of the first things that I noticed when I began attending this house church was that families sat all over the room. Like they just, they did not sit in like one giant unit. And that made a very strong impression. There were a number of families when I first started going to the church. And to see them just like be populated in different spaces made me feel honestly like I stepped into a church family where everyone was sitting, you know, interwoven with other people. And that that was kind of this new identity. I don't know. It was like this very like powerful visual and physical reminder. So I read that article and I was like, yes. Also, I think I have like similar. We'll see if it becomes clear, but I think I have like similar social tendencies as Rebecca as far as like talking to new people. Sure. Yes, you do. I I can I can attest that more. Morgan would be the last per- if in a traditional church you would be the last person going to your car you would make sure that there was no one else there that you possibly could talk to and then the janitor would come and you would talk to the janitor for half an hour and then you would leave This could happen guys All right I'm not going to back down from this accusation or characterization if I may say so myself All right Rebecca what prompted you to write this piece 
See, the initial prompt was simply a good friend of mine asking me with kind concern if Brian and I were okay. And I was surprised by the question because we, we were okay. But I asked her, why, why do you ask? And she said, well, I noticed you weren't sitting together in church. And I explained to her then why it is that Brian and I are often not sitting together in church. But as the conversation progressed, it just occurred to me this was by far not the first time I'd had that question. It was probably the 10th or 15th time I've had that question over the years. And that I wanted to uh, find a space to articulate a little more fully why it is that we make that choice. So why do you make that choice? Like, like bring us back to the genesis of you deciding that you were going to be intentional about this particular thing with church seating. Sure. Yeah. So it's interesting, actually, even the language that we've been using to frame this in the last few minutes. So uh, Ted referred to questioning whether you should sit together as a family at church. I think I would want to say I don't for a minute question whether we should sit together as a family at church. I'm questioning what family is. Right. <laughs> and right. <laughs> it seems to me that the New Testament drives a truck through our modern um, Western, uh, dare I say it, often American conceptions of family as being near mom and dad and 2.4 kids. I think the Bible gives us an extraordinarily elevated view of marriage. I think Jesus's own words changed the status of children radically in the first century. Um, so this is not at all about denigrating the value of marriage, the value of family in the nuclear sense. At the same time, I mean, we all remember when in Matthew 7, folks come to Jesus and say, hey, your mum and your brothers are outside. I want to talk to you. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Those who listen to the word of God are my mother and brother and sisters. So I think we're treading on thin ice if we define family as me, my husband and my two and going on three children. Because I don't think that's how Jesus defines it. You know, so there's this initial type of like, oh, why do you guys choose to to sit in two different places that you've ad addressed, right? But some of the, I guess, pushback that we're seeing, though, is from people who are saying, whoa, 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 this is not necessarily a theological thing. This is about, you know, my own personality type being understood and valued by the church, sure. right? Yeah, so yeah. let's talk about these reactions that are kind of like, all you social people are just imposing on a place that I'm going for music, for a sermon, for prayer, alone with God. And like, I don't necessarily want to be, quote unquote, bothered in that mission. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so first off, I want to declare my clear extrovert bias. So I, I make no pretense about the fact that I come to this with a certain pair of glasses on my face. Having said that, I think regardless of our personality type, we will all find ways in which Christian discipleship stretches us. So for me, the idea of sitting by myself every day, reading God's word and praying alone is actually not that natural to me. I would frankly rather be with a group of people praying together, reading together, worshipping together. But Jesus is pretty clear that it's important for Christians to spend time alone praying to the Lord and, you know, as, as we have access to the scriptures and ability to read, which, you know, is not the default assumption in the first century, but as we have that privilege today, engaging God's word individually and singly. That's something that I need to do every single day of my life. And that's probably an area in which I intentionally have to rein in or overcome my extroversion to set aside that time. By the same token, I think the biblical descriptions of the church as one body, as a family, brothers and sisters, um, as a, a messy community, leave 
us, regardless of our personality types, without the option of saying, I've come to church to be by myself. It, to me, I, it seems theologically to me that that's like saying, I, I want to go to church, but I don't want to hear from the scriptures. I mean, unfortunately, that's just not what church is. <laughs> so to to the the um, person who said, would you approach somebody in a park or at the store in the same way? You know, part of the answer, honestly, is yes. <laughs> I do. I do try to connect with people in informal settings. In New England, no less. I'm impressed. In in New England, no less. But I think that the reality is that at the park, I'm not meeting with people with whom I am one body. And at the store, I'm not meeting with people who are profoundly, in a true sense, my brothers and sisters. But when I walk into church on a Sunday and I see somebody sitting by themselves, even if I've never met them in my life before, I need to work on the assumption that they are either my brother or sister in Christ, in which case we're family, we sit together, or somebody who needs to hear the gospel, in which case, you know, maybe I can be part of their story, welcoming them, welcoming them into this community. So I go to a fairly small church where I know most of the people in my congregation. Mm-hmm. Morgan's at a, a you know, a very small church. She definitely knows everybody there. Uh, there's already a context. Uh, I don't know how, how large of a church your context is, but what are the kind of uh, signals you use to pick up um, or that you would say, I'm going to go sit by uh, this person rather than uh, that person uh, today? Yes, it will, it will depend. Often we walk into church and literally there is two or three, sometimes up to five people who are sitting by themselves at the very end of a row. So almost to sit with them, you kind of have to ask them to move aside and sort of squeeze yourself around them. And they probably have five to ten you know, seats between them and the next person. As is the um, American way, especially the American man way. <laughs> well, you know, interestingly, it's typically women who are by themselves in this context. Uh, I think, sadly, fewer men by themselves are showing up to church. Yes, that's very days. true. Yep, absolutely. Um, and so I also have the, the, the blessing of, of two kids who I think help to make me unthreatening in some sense. You know, it's, it sounds an awful analogy, but it's almost like having a dog and walking down the street and, you know, somebody talks to your dog and then you can kind of get into conversation. So I'll often come with my girls or they'll show up at some point in the conversation. Uh, but I just, I, yeah, I look for people who are sitting by themselves and I honestly, I work on the assumption and I've had the vast majority of feedback I've had from people has confirmed this, that actually most people in their heart of hearts do not want to be sitting by themselves in church. And I've actually had this from a friend recently who describes herself as an extreme introvert, but finds the experience of sitting by herself at church quite painful. So in some sense, even to just go sit next to somebody, it doesn't mean you have to talk to them incessantly through the service. But to have that physical presence of, hey, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm glad you're here, and I want to be kind of alongside you. I think it's part of our gospel calling on a Sunday. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, Morgan, you mentioned the uh, common misunderstanding of introverts is not uh, that they dislike people, it's just they don't like large groups of people. And they get sapped. They get sapped, right, exactly. You know, one of the things that occurred to me reading reading your piece, Rebecca, was just <laughs> how 20th and 21st century of a context this is. You know, for most of church history, this this would not would not have been an issue. Uh, or we have we've had this move one to um, seats. You know, we, we, when you're when you're uh, standing around in church, as as many Orthodox churches still do, uh, this would not be as much of an issue. Uh, so the move just from standing to like pews, 
And then the um, move from uh, pews to like stadium style seats uh, changes that as well. Where in a pew, you kind of do find yourself sitting uh, with people who are not who you did not come with. Although, again, uh, historically, there's that weird aspect of of pew rental where you you know you pay <laughs> right. you, you pay your you know you, you literally have your own seat. Uh, CT Women ran a piece, uh, I think it was a year ago or so, just looking at the the idea of kind of having almost an assigned a seat in church. And is that a bad thing or is it a good thing? And this writer was talking about how it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, there is, you know, at the dinner table as well, you kind of have these, these seats that you kind of go to. You want to make sure that they're still outwardly focused, uh, but that kind of place of belonging, of sitting Well, in and just to provide a concrete example of that, I know that Willow Creek Community Church, a mega church, in in particular, like fosters community life around people's sections. Yeah. So they they have small groups that are based on directly where you are sitting where on you Sunday mornings. To, where you tend to sit on Sunday mornings. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then you know, um, we've been talking about doing a piece for a while, and and now because of the I think response to this piece, we're gonna go ahead and and assign a, a writer to do it. But you know, just looking at the fact that men and women did not start sitting together until the mid 1700s. I mean, that's when churches. And also some synagogues, you know that that kind of integrated seating did not happen until the mid 1700s. That's a very short time ago, and you know many many churches and and denominations like the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, they didn't start integrating until the mid 1800s. You know, so some some churches did it quickly, some churches uh, took them longer, and then there's of course a number of uh, smaller Anabaptist groups and and holiness uh, sects. They still have separate seating for men and women. So uh, this idea that you know you go with your uh, spouse and children and sit, sit in the same four stadium seats, it's like an assumption that almost everyone carries with them in their church, but it would not have been an assumption for most Christians through most, uh, through most history. Yeah, and just to add a slightly amusing anecdote onto that, a couple of weeks ago, my husband, who'd been talking with other people after church than I had, as we typically do, came up to me and said, uh, oh, I was talking with a, a woman who goes to Harvard Business School after church. And I said, oh, great. Did you introduce her to Nancy, our other friend who goes to Harvard Business School? He said, oh, no, I didn't see Nancy. I said, well, did you get her, her contact details so you could connect her with Nancy? And he said, well, no, I thought it would be a bit weird if I, as a man, a sort of lone man in this context, asked her for her contact details. And I thought, oh, yeah, it probably is a bit weird for you to do that. This is actually part of the reason why I, I wanted to publish this particular article with, with CT Women, not because I don't think men can play a, a tremendously important role in welcoming uh, other men and families to the church. I think they can. But I do think as a woman, I have a little bit more latitude, and particularly as a woman with children, I can kind of be an unthreatening presence. Nobody thinks I'm sort of uh, trying to chat them up if I can go up and introduce myself and, and try to connect them into community because they don't necessarily see me in that way. What does your husband do in those contexts? Does he, I mean, given that there's very few men uh, coming to churches, you know, the other flip side of this is that men do have a harder time making close friendships uh, in church contexts and in other contexts. Is he typically going to sit sit close to a close friend? Is he uh, scoping out the church for um, newcomers uh, that he may sit with, new families? Like, wh- where where is he going? Yeah, so I think you're, you're right that often men in churches slightly hide behind the reality of their biological family and don't push themselves necessarily to connect on a deep level with others. And my husband certainly looks for opportunities to do that around the edges of church. In terms of people he can serve directly on a Sunday morning, it's actually often 
many have come by themselves and have significant life challenges, whether it's with alcoholism or homelessness or another challenge of, of that nature. And he's able to just be a presence for them and a welcoming part of their experience at church and listen to some of the struggles they've had that week afterward. So I think there's ample opportunity to love and care for single men. Um, they may present themselves in different ways than the typical Sunday morning woman walking in by herself. Yeah, I think this conversation is, is really interesting, too, because this is something that your family kind of on their own volition has decided to to make this a priority. But I think of many larger churches that I've been a part of that have official hospitality teams, you know, to kind of greet people. And judging from some of the remarks that I got, there was a very strong reaction to some of the ways that these hospitality teams have presented or chatted up new people in in a way that I think some people felt like was artificial or maybe like felt like they were a project or a potential new person, you know, when, when many people are trying out a church, but they don't necessarily want to have like, you know, anything close to like the car dealership experience. (laughs) How can a church build a hospitality strategy, especially, you know, that is when we're talking about like large churches here, um, that is sensitive to how people feel, especially when with regards to like getting pressured and so forth. Sure, yeah. So I think ushers and formal greeters play an important role of being the first smiley face that people see as they walk into a church and maybe directing them to a place to sit or whatever the appropriate thing is. I don't think anyone feels truly personally welcomed by somebody who has a badge that says usher. Uh, I think that comes from people who are much more organically connecting with them in different ways. Um, and in some sense, I don't know that our churches need more of a hospitality strategy. I think our churches need more of a discipleship strategy. Because if we really understood what church is and stopped thinking that it was either about you know me and my family presenting a happy, sort of shiny, united front, or about really primarily about me hearing the sermon or getting to enjoy my alone time with God or whatever, you know, whatever it is that I'm bringing to church as my sort of primary need. And we started to see church gatherings as a place to be one body and to be a broader family and to be more concerned to love others than to necessarily meet our own needs. Then I think hospitality is so intrinsic to that that it just will happen. So, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It, it's kind of a fine line. A hospitality strategy is a great idea in some sense, but maybe takes the heart out of this whole process, which is to say, who am I before the Lord on a Sunday? Who are my people? How do I make Jesus real in my own life through this experience? And I fundamentally don't think that's an act of condescension. I think it's it's an opportunity not just to bless, but to be blessed. I think I would suggest that a hospitality strategy may not be like mobilizing more people in your congregation to join the welcome team or even necessarily have a booth in the back that newcomers go to. But I think that there are like design details that can go into a church service that indicate hospitality or not. So for a while, I went to a church where we wore name tags, which I always thought was like a great idea. Um, because why... Why make the onus like, oh, you should know everybody's names rather than just assume that lots of people have stuff going on. They're not going to remember everybody's names. And I found that that particular church, we just used each other's names all the time. And it built a lot closer sense of community a lot more quickly because people didn't avoid people that they had forgotten their names of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and also you kind of had a permanent name tag that you went back to. So when once you made your name tag, you felt like, oh, I belong at this church. And then all the name tags were kept there. And then I also think that like hospitality can also mean like, what kind of lights do you use in the sanctuary? And like, how loud is the music? And how is your food set up afterwards? Or how is a parking lot there? I know that, you know, my parents have attended a church for a while where the church literally <laughs> doesn't want people to socialize in the sanctuary, which in this case is a high school gym. But they don't want people to do that. So they turn up the music after the sermon so that people will move out into the other space, which I feel like benefits people who have gone to the church for a while because they're just going to find their friends. But for many of us who are kind of like looking around after a service and maybe could just have a, like an easy conversation with someone around us, it can feel like a huge barrier to entry if you're going to shout and scream at the other person. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's just not a friendly way to to make people feel comfortable. Yeah. And I think the point about finding our friends is important as well. I actually have a good friend at our church who I got to know a, a year and a half ago. And as we were getting to know each other, I said to her, you know, I like you so much that I really don't want to sit near you on a Sunday because I'm going to be tempted to talk to you and catch up on all the stuff we want to <laughs> chat about. And I'm going to neglect the people around me who I want to be investing in. And, you, you know, you will as well. So I think having more of a culture within our churches of saying, because I love you, I'm not going to spend a ton of time with you on a Sunday morning, which can apply to your husband or to your best friends uh, who you can see at other times and to prioritize those who maybe need that investment more. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. I'm here with Tom Schreiner, one of the translators for the Christian Standard Bible, with a story about how a Bible translation helped him become a Christian. I was converted when I was uh, 17 at the end of my junior year in high school. And one thing that played a big role in my conversion was reading the Living Bible. It was pretty controversial because it's more of a paraphrase than a, than a strict translation. But it was perfect for me at the time. As a person who'd never read the Bible, I thought of the Bible as a very antiquated book. The Living Bible had a freshness and a, a realism that, that spoke to me. And, and I think overall, in terms of the overall message, I mean, it, it was accurate. And in that way, it was just very helpful. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com slash ct. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. I want to go back to this idea of uh, discipleship and, and condescension. How can people do this in a way that is not like, oh, 
I am going to go sit by this person because they seem lonely and look what a good person I am. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a condescension aspect. And this came up in a few of the Facebook comments as well. How, how can people who want to do this, who, who are struck by your challenge to do this, try to make it not, not in a way that's like, you look, you know, come up to someone, you look lonely, I will sit with you. Um, <laughs> right. You, you mentioned this in a little bit uh, in a follow-up post. So I think we have systematically mythologized marriage to where we expect husbands and wives to meet each other's every social and emotional need. And I think that puts an enormous pressure on, on marriages and an enormous pressure on single people in, in different ways. Um, so just to particularly bridging that gap, I remember a few weeks ago, I was experiencing some relational stress, even in the context of church. And after dropping my girls off at, at Sunday school, I came back up into the church uh, building and I sat with a, a lovely, empathetic, extroverted single friend who knows me well. And I said to her, I sort of whispered to her as the, the singing recommenced, just as you know, I'm sitting with you today for my sake, not yours. And I often find that engaging with people outside my immediate family who I love and get to spend you know, time with in other contexts is, is super helpful for me. Um, I think we often find ourselves asking the question, who will love me? Um, and I've certainly found that as many of my close friends have moved away from our church to other parts of the world for various reasons. Finding ourselves asking that question, who will love me? And changing it into a question, who can I love? And looking for those people then kind of counterintuitively in Lord's grace actually brings us the love and support that we need as well. So not to say that it's either an act of condescension or an act of personal need filling in some weird and unhealthy way. But at the same time, I think we humans are designed to need each other. And I think we Christians in particular are designed to need each other. And that that applies across all sorts of relational contexts. So we are missing out if we're not sitting with people in church who are unlike us in whatever way, and we're depriving ourselves as much as we're depriving them. Your article in CT Women ended with this idea of, of we all kind of need uh, disillusionment with church. You know, many of us leave because we've become disillusioned. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to bring up in the context of, of this conversation. I have to admit, the first time I read it, I'm like, wait, it seems like we jumped to another topic. How does this relate to sitting together as a as a biological family or not, where does that sense of, of disillusionment with church, not just with uh, other human beings, how does that dovetail with uh, where you sit in church? So I've heard from a lot of people in the last few days who have experienced disillusionment from church, uh, particularly in the areas that the article identifies. So people who've lost their husband or wife through death or a painful divorce, or people who a single or for whatever other reason are trying to engage in, in Christian community uh, you know, more individually and have found that to be a profoundly disappointing experience, uh, either because folks aren't reaching out to them or because they've just they've just been hurt relationally in different ways. And I, I've been hurt by Christian friends. I've been hurt in church context and, and I've hurt other people. And I think the, the insight that Bonhoeffer brings to us, which I think is profoundly biblical, is to say, Actually, we need to understand that both we and the people we're engaging with at church are not just, you know, lovely Christians with a few warts here and there, but actually broken sinners who are going to hurt each other and are going to, you know, use and abuse each other in, in, in various ways. And that that doesn't actually undermine 
the gospel at the end of the day because the gospel meets us in that brokenness and sin. And so if if we come to church with the expectation that everything's going to work out great, we're going to find ourselves disappointed and we're going to get hurt. And if we come thinking, you know what, I'm bringing my own sin into this community and I'm expecting to encounter the sin of others. Um, and to know that that is actually normative for church, uh, this side of eternity, will really help us then to see what it means to live in, in deep Christian community. And I think, again, I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words on this are some of the most profound um, going, partly because his experience of disillusionment with the church was was beyond what any of us will encounter. You know, when you see churches around you complicit in, in Nazi programming, I mean, how could anything be more disillusioning than that? But I think we need to not have a, a shiny, happy, uh, you know, skin deep view of Christian community, but to recognize that Jesus will meet us in the painful places as well as in the, the happy songs. Yeah, I, I do think that that is good and also just really challenging and difficult stuff. I know that we mentioned at the top of the podcast that Rebecca, you and I kind of have similar ways of being when it comes to being socially. And so sometimes I like feel nervous about dispensing advice about how people should engage the world socially, because I know that some of this just comes a lot easier for me than it comes to other people or naturally is probably how I should say that. And to that extent, I mean, it seems like risk taking has to be involved in some way, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily something that we associate with Sunday morning church. And then coupled with like theological principles that the, that undergird all of that, because we really are asking people to take a situation right now where, where the culture is to show up with the people that you drove with to church and then to sit with them. And we're saying, do something that is going to feel uncomfortable and maybe make small talk, even though you hate making small talk and go someplace where no one invited you and do that because it's good anyway. You know, and I know that many of my peers, at the very least, loathe awkward situations. And so this feels like they're automatically putting themselves in an awkward situation or that someone's going to come over that can't hold a conversation very well and make things awkward for them. Yeah, it's just it's a very countercultural type of thing to put our put you know put ourselves in, especially when you know the default way of being uncomfortable in this day and age is just to kind of retreat to your phone. Right. I'd go back to the wonderful words of the Apostle Paul, where he says, "You know, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are one in Christ." I mean, put yourself back into first century Jews trying to well Jews and Gentiles trying to bridge the fundamental social and cultural gaps of their time. So whether it was Jew versus Gentile, whether it was slave versus free, whether it was male versus female, if we think we're uncomfortable and in awkward situations with people who seem a little different from us on a Sunday morning, just imagine how hard it must have been in the first century. And I think being able to recognize that actually our brotherhood, our sisterhood extends beyond anything that you could see at a surface level in terms of commonality and being more afraid of leaving somebody feeling isolated than of their potential rejection of our attempt to love them, um, I think will help us all to, to stretch ourselves into that. So, you know, I've been to, I've been to churches where everything is very much um, front of the church focused, where it's a little bit more sender-receiver uh, oriented. and. I don't mean that in a negative way. I've been to some churches where I've had some uh, that 
because of a few of a few size issues and other things, uh, it has just been a little bit more that way, uh, where the togetherness is kind of the congregational singing aspect and maybe a, hey, shake the hands of the people around you. Uh, and I've been to some other churches, again, they tend to be smaller churches, where there's um, much more interaction and, and um, engagement kind of during the service. Uh, when I was in Kenya, there's a there's a lot of that at the church I went to there, where multiple times in the service it's like, hey, talk to the person next to you about, you know, ask the person next to you how this related to their life. Just in my own congregation, we have moved, to, uh, because of a, a recent uh, growth spurt, uh, we have had to change the passing of the peace. I'm in an Anglican congregation. We passed the peace. Uh, it used to go on uh, for a really long time because at one stage we were small enough so that you could literally pass the peace with everybody in the in the church. Now, uh, that would take, half an hour uh, or more to do that. So uh, we have had to say, you know, we've had to actually cut off the passing of the peace, whereas before it was, you know, it kind of naturally ended. Uh, and that's been hard for a number of the people in the congregation where they're just like, oh, I can't greet everybody. You know, the extroverts want to greet everybody. <laughs> so just our church right now is having to wrestle a little bit with like what during the service, you know, because again, after the service, people go out to the foyer, they stay in the in the sanctuary, they're greeting each other. Families do kind of disperse, biological families do disperse uh, kind of after the service to talk to friends and, and, and uh, visitors and that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, what is, does your church do anything interesting in the middle of the uh, actual service itself to have the horizontal connections to people sitting near mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a couple of minutes about a third of the way in where people are encouraged to say hi to the person next to them. I usually find those conversations are so short that unless I've either talked with somebody before or I'm planning to afterwards, we don't get much beyond, hi, what's your name? Where do you come from? Full stop kind of thing. It's a gesture in a great direction, but certainly not going to be sufficient. I found it's interesting you mentioned you were part of an Anglican church. I grew up in that tradition in the UK and then in the US we attend a a Baptist church. And the transition for me from passing a communion cup around and everybody drinking from the same cup to little plastic, uh, <laughs> you know, individual cups of, of grape juice that we we share out, that was actually a big deal for me and, and somewhat painful because I was thinking, oh, I thought this was one of the ways that we showed that we are in fact one body is by sharing bread and, and cup and and frankly, like sharing saliva and sharing, you know, yeah. As you were with a family, uh, just getting each other's business a little bit, even in, in that more symbolic way. So I, I feel like any natural or uh, programmed ways in which we can connect with each other are good. Um, I think even of an instance a, a few weeks ago, I greeted a friend who you know struggles with some life circumstances that I don't. And afterwards, I noticed that from having hugged him, I actually had a little bit of a lingering of a different kind of odor than I usually have. And I thought, I thought, oh, that's actually a good thing. That is part of me being one body with this congregation through, you know, this particular individual. Thank you for sharing all that stuff, Rebecca. I guess I just have one last question, which is, I do think it's really interesting that, you know, you're writing this as someone who is not American. And so are there any other kind of structural blind spots you see in the area of hospitality when it comes to American churches that you feel like you've been able to identify? Yes, I I can't speak obviously for every church in England or America, but the church that my husband and I met in 
um, in Cambridge in the UK versus the one that we have a delightful time in at Cambridge in Massachusetts. The DNA of the church was such that Sunday morning was not about you and your family or you and your friends or even your kind of private moment with the Lord. It was about welcoming other people and drawing others in. So I feel like I had the blessing of being sort of culturally brainwashed in a a very biblical way by the the wonderful church community there. And we, you know, we Brits aren't the most friendly people culturally relative to Americans necessarily. So So they say. It is a a gospel imperative. Um, So having said that, it's a cultural norm in England if you go out for dinner or if you have people around for dinner, you're not allowed to sit with your husband or wife. You intentionally sit with other people. Whereas in America, it seems like it's the norm for people to sit in kind of adjacent couples and limit the amount that they actually get to interact with others. So there's probably some cultural crossover there. And in terms of other blind spots, I mean... I feel like our church and probably many majority white churches in America have a long way to go in terms of learning how to be truly hospitable to people of color and um, both who've grown up in the U.S. and also folks who've immigrated from from other places. Uh, I think there are important ways in which we're learning to do that. But I would say there are doubtless blind spots in our congregation and probably in in each of our congregations where we'll only learn what those are by asking people who you know, have different kinds of life experiences than we do. I mean, I'll just conclude by saying that one of that can be by hugging people more. Definitely, that's something that I feel like when I'm in majority white churches does not happen as much. Yeah, but now, I mean, that would be an interesting thing to follow up on because our church has become a little bit less huggy in the um, real, you know, in the discussions of how uncomfortable uh, how aggressive some people can be with their hugs and people hugging <laughs> hugging strangers can be uh definitely uh, a problem um i guess it does depend on like era. what your church's norms are already but there's a lot of churches where i just like like i know you we're friends right yeah yeah right you can hug me where where there's context yeah name tags with um color coded i'm a hugger i'm not a hugger <laughs> that 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 seems to be the big takeaway uh from this podcast well, I got to tell you though, I the first time I visited Oklahoma, which is where my husband comes from, we decided to worship that Sunday at the the local um, Black community church, and we walked in there, and in the space of an hour and a half, my husband recalls getting more hugs than he had received in the entire like two years he'd been in England in grad school previously. We were clearly newcomers, and nobody cared. They just embraced us into the church family in ways that we found profoundly encouraging and and frankly challenging to some of our you know kind of british cultural norms or at least my british cultural norms so i don't know if we need color coding or if uh, <laughs> we just need to act like family i will say there's many historically black churches too where they will make you stand up if you're new as well and say something to the congregation so a lot of this is very cultural when it comes oh, down yeah. to you know what is expected of you yeah, I've been in those churches before too, where I'm like, I'm, I'm here. Hi. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, someone very close to me has has uh, uh, sensory sensitivities and uh, gets really like if if they enter a place where people are hugging, they kind of freak out because they're like, oh, someone's going to try to hug me, and it's uh, they like run in terror from that, run in terror from that. But it, it just goes to some of these issues of sensitivity and welcome. Uh, well, one, uh, hospitality can look very different to some people, but uh, I think until you start like 
getting to know people. Like that's what you, that's why you try to get to know people. You start to get to know like what is welcoming. There's a newcomer thing, but you know, a lot of the, a lot of what you're, what I took away from, from your, your piece, Rebecca, is it's not all just, oh, make sure you sit with the new people. It's like sit with, sit with people who are, who are alone or who, who you, who you may already know quite well, but go sit with them. They're part of your family. Uh, the family idea rather than the, the, uh, Purely seeing this as go sit with newcomers is, is, I think, the key. Guys, this was a great discussion. And there's always lots to ponder and potentially live out and change how you do your thing on Sunday morning. If you have thoughts or feedback on this podcast, you can leave it at CT Podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com. Now is the part of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets to share something that is bringing them joy. Ted, you ready to go? I am. This last weekend, we went to Fermilab, which is the uh, large uh, particle physics uh, accelerator laboratory near here uh, in the west suburbs of Chicago. Uh, A pretty awesome science place. But to eke out a little additional federal funding, they uh since like 1969 they have had a bison herd there and so uh we try to go to see the bison around this time of year to go see the baby bison that are being born and so it took took the kids to go see the baby bison uh saw a bison that i i it seemed like it had just been born it was very shaky on its legs and bison can walk 3 hours after they're born so this clearly was probably born that that morning it was awesome. I just, I love. First time or you go all, you say you go a lot? We've been a few times and we're going to Yellowstone uh, this summer. So we wanted to kind of get excited to go to Yellowstone and see the bison by looking at the cute baby bison. Because when, by the time we get to Yellowstone, the baby bison will be all, they'll be teenage bison by then. I know. I, I'll tell you my story sometime of how I asked if you could pet the bison. Oh, at Yellowstone. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's Well, like I was at, on the, a bison safari in oh. South Dakota. Oh, well, there you go. Were they? Were they? Uh, then he's told us all. Were they story. domestic bison? Of course I mean, not. There's no domestic bison, and literally the guy ended up telling me the story of this person who got gored by a bison instead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are there are a number of bison that have been uh, uh, crossed with with cattle. What's nice about this Fermi lab uh, is, is that they are 100 percent bison, so it is, it, they they do look a little bit more. They're also kind of blind in the very front of their head. Yeah, well, they, their eyes do not. Uh, their eyes are really separated, so. Not weird. You imagine having no, a giant I mean, blind spot in front. A lot. My understanding is that a number of uh, herbivores have that same issue. So eyes in the front, carnivore eyes to the side, herbivore. Anyway, whatever. That's my uh, precious moment and hearkening back to the days of the Behemoth magazine, uh, which was a science and nature and uh, awe and wonder magazine. I, I, just, I could talk to I you more about animals. bison later. We cause... could do Ted's Animal Stories podcast. That would be great. Um <laughs> Are you online? I am at Ted Olson. That's uh, T-E-D-O-L-S-E-N. Rebecca, you want to go? Sure. So I don't know if you've ever done the Enneagram personality test. I did it once and I came out as a a helper, number two. And when I first heard that term, I felt kind of irritated because, you know, helper sounds kind of pathetic. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, I really like helping people and particularly helping people to fulfill their unique potential to be used by the Lord. And I derived a lot of joy yesterday from hearing from a good friend who has tremendous potential to be serving the Lord in, in various public ways um, about a sort of emerging book contract for her. And it just made me 
really happy that many people are going to get to hear more from her and be built up by what she has to say. That's great. Right on. Are you on Twitter? I am. So I'm on Twitter as of relatively recently at Begin With Words. And my website is creatively entitled RebeccaMcLaughlin.org. I'm I'm interested in vocable communications. Do you guys have a have a website? We do vocablecommunications.com. Um, it's me and five rhetoric professors or communications professors, and we're coaching individuals and corporations and nonprofit organizations and you know you name it in terms of their public communication. Uh, so how to give a great talk to a thousand people or how to have a great phone call with one particular client. I don't know if this counts as a precious moment. My birthday is on Friday, Yay. which hopefully will be Yay. something that is a precious moment. One thing <laughs> that will happen that day, hopefully, knock on wood, um, we'll go down to Promontory Point, which is a part of Chicago where there's a nice view of downtown. It's near Hyde Park and have a campfire down there. Nice. That is the plan. Tis the season for good outdoor fires here. I think so, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's spring not like and, frigid spring anymore. And fall. That's those are good those are good fire times. Awesome. A, a future precious moment. Expectations always good. I'm also just like trying to reorient my attitude around birthdays and be like really happy to be alive. Which I am happy to be alive. Just birthdays sometimes you're like, ugh, what? Another year? People can find me online or wish me happy birthday if they want to. At M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred, and Richard Clark. You can find the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Overcast. The list goes on. You can help us with the podcast, though, by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us five stars and telling us why it's a great podcast and all the things that you learn from it. Thank you to everyone who has done that so far. You could also help the podcast out by becoming a subscriber of Christianity Today, and you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. See you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.